The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Last Sunday we considered the the spirit-led church of Antioch and how Barnabas and Saul were, were set apart and sent to go to the island of Cyprus. They went to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles, to the synagogues on the east side of Cyprus at Salamis, proclaiming the word of God, and then making a straight path across the island to the west side and the city of Paphos. The proconsul Sergius Paulus, we were uh, told that story, described as an intelligent and powerful Roman leader, a man of obvious influence, asked, uh, this man asked Barnabas and Saul to come and speak. And if you remember, there was a man named Elymas, a magician who opposed them. The magician, this magician was also known as Bar-Jesus, Bar meaning son of. So apparently this man was threatened by Barnabas and Saul, threatened um, because Sergius Paulus was his boss, really, or that was his source of income. And so what does he do? He opposes them. He seeks to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. And with irony, Luke tells us that Paul calls Bar-Jesus, again, meaning son of Jesus, he calls him Son of a devil. As if to say, you're no son of Jesus, who is the truth. You're a son of the devil, who is the father of lies. You're not full of the truth. You're full of deceit and villainy. Stop trying to twist and pervert the straight path of the Lord that has brought us here. And then Paul tells us, the fortune teller, He tells the fortune teller that he's going to be blinded for a time. And the man who hires himself out as a guide is blinded and then needing to be guided by the hand. An amazing truth that we see in this story is that Sergius Paulus comes to the faith. This powerful Roman leader comes to the faith and we think maybe, well, it's because of this greater, superior display of power. And yet what we're told in the text is it wasn't the miracle, the power that astonished him, but it was the teaching of the Lord. As we read about the early church in Acts and how they, how they were led by the Spirit of God, we're reminded of our connection to them, that we too are to go and make disciples. We're We're to be led by the Spirit of God in our worship and in our praying, seeking the Lord's will, discerning uh, His Word. And so with that in mind, let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we go to His Word and discern it. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us to see, Lord, help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. May your Holy Spirit shine a spotlight on him and cause us to love him and trust him and 
share him with others. Lord, thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world that you have enabled us to partner with in sharing the gospel. And we we ask, Lord, that you would please bless and protect and encourage and, and use them. Lord, be with those from this church who are still camping today. Bless Pastor Bill as he gives a message there. Thank you for our time together last night, the great fellowship at camp, the baptisms that took place. Uh, What a blessing that was. So thank you. Thank you that you have cleansed us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, do things even more, uh, a little different this morning. This morning we're going to look at the rest of this chapter, so it's a long passage and uh, I'm not going to invite you to stand for this long reading. So we're just going to we're going to work our way through this text. You can follow along uh, just piece by piece in your comfortable seated positions there. So let's begin with verse 13. Follow along. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so from the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas set sail to the coast of Asia Minor, which is southern Turkey today. They go to Perga, the capital city of Pam- the region of Pamphylia. And from there they go to another city named Antioch. They came from Antioch in Syria, and this Antioch is in Pisidia. Apparently there were a lot of cities called Antioch. Uh, so this one is a, is a different one up, up uh, in uh, Asia Minor area. So something Luke quickly mentions to us without getting into the details here is that John Mark leaves. John Mark leaves and returns to Jerusalem. He just says it really briefly, but later on we're going to see that this was a big deal. This was a big deal in Paul's mind. In fact, at the start... Of the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas apparently have a bit of an argument over this leaving, this desertion of John Mark, and they decide that they're going to go separate ways. Uh, What Paul takes on Silas, uh, goes into Asia Minor, Europe, takes that second missionary journey, and Barnabas sticks with John Mark, and they go back to Cyprus. So... Later on, I'm going to see that this was a big deal. Paul uh, sees this as a desertion. And uh, that John Mark is unfit for future service. While Barnabas, he's an encourager, right? He defends him. Um, This is actually his nephew. So later we'll see John Mark's great contribution with Peter which results in the Gospel of Mark. And eventually, 
Paul comes around and we read in 2 Timothy 4 that he, that he writes and asks for Mark, saying that he is very useful to me in ministry. So, whew, reconciliation. But they're human, right? We read this and we think, oh, they're human. It's sad to see, and yet God has his purposes. He intends it for good. And eventually there, there is this beautiful reconciliation. Some say, we have a little bit of a hint in verse 13 as, as to the reason for the breakup. What may have been the problem with John Mark. Notice that, that all along, what have we been reading about the team name here? It's always been Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And now, verse 13, we read Paul. It doesn't even say Paul and Barnabas. It just says Paul and his companions set sail. So there's a shift that's taken place. Paul is into, in a greater position of leadership. We have this, this hint, and, and no, no hint that Barnabas has a problem with it, um, with the rise of Paul in the ministry, but maybe his nephew did. Maybe John Mark, Maybe this is what was bothering John Mark, seeing his uncle um, diminished or put into a lesser role. Others, they've suggested that this journey from Paphos to Perga, that, that this was a dangerous area with bandits, and maybe John Mark left out of fear. So whatever it was, this was a big deal. Um, and regardless, what we see is they're human. They're susceptible to hurt feelings. You know, we think of, we have this, these big images, and yes, you know, the Apostle Paul and these missionary journeys, and it's in the scriptures, and yet, isn't that what's great about the Bible and all of its characters? You know, if it was just legend, they'd make them look really good. And yet we see, we see these characters, warts and all, um, it just, just goes to the to the point of the authenticity of, of the scriptures, that they're telling the truth. So, yeah, they're susceptible to hurt feelings and fear and jealousy and, and resentment. And we can see that this is another attack of the enemy, desiring division. And yet, once again, what does God do? God works it for good. He always does. He works it for good for the message, for the sake of the gospel, the call to go and preach the good news. Is there, this is their greatest priority. And even Mark in his struggles grows and, and he proves useful in the, in the end. So what we can learn, well, yeah, people will disappoint us. People will let us down. There's a, but there's a higher purpose. There's a higher purpose in the gospel, which ultimately brings about healing. And when I think of this, this is why uh, I've said recently, you know, I just, I want to bless and pray for the various churches around us. You know, there can be disagreements, theological disagreements, division, even jealousy, feelings get hurt. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than any of that. And so I want to have an attitude that's able to pray and ask that they be blessed, that God give them growth and usefulness 
in the ministry. So Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Antioch and Pisidia. And once again, they go to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. They go on a Saturday, on a Sabbath, to the synagogue where the scriptures are read and the rulers Kind of funny, isn't it? Apparently not knowing who these guests are and what they're getting themselves into, they ask, you have a word you want to share to the people? Oh, yes. Paul has something to share. He has the best word of encouragement ever. And it's interesting, too. He knows his audience, doesn't he? We'll see some other preachings of Paul where he doesn't go back over all of the history of, of the scriptures. He knows he's talking to pagans and so he'll, he'll still preach the gospel, but he'll go about it in a different way. So here we see he knows his audience. He knows that they have an understanding of the Old Testament, Israel's history. Like, and it reminds us of Peter. In his sermons, it reminds us of Stephen uh, in his sermon. Paul begins by showing God's plan of redemption and how it all points to and culminates in Jesus. In this sermon, we see, we see proclamation. And then in verse 38, we, we see that word therefore. And what do, we, what do we always say when we see that word therefore? We ask, what is therefore therefore? And, uh, and, it, and it leads into application. So proclamation, application, and then finally we see two different responses. God's word does not return void. Paul proclaims it. He makes application. He demands, it demands a response. So first, there's proclamation. Proclamation of how God has worked in Israel's history. Look at verse 16. We'll continue. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Again, he knows his audience. Men of Israel, this is your history. And you who fear God, meaning we've talked about this category of people referred to as God-fearers. They're these Gentiles, really, who are interested in Judaism, uh, attend synagogue, uh, have decided they haven't fully converted, haven't been circumcised, haven't put themselves under the law, but they're interested. They know the scriptures. They know uh, the same history. So that's who Paul is talking to. To them, Paul proclaims, and um, pay attention to who is the subject and all of the actions described here by Paul. Here's what he proclaims. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. It's their history. It's what they cling to with great pride, that they are God's children. And eventually we'll hear Paul heartbreaking for them, saying in Romans 9, Oh, I have, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself might be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He loves the Jews. I wish I could be cut off for their sake. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul Paul knows what it's like to be blind to who Jesus is. He knows what it's like. His message, it's a lot like Peter's in Acts 2. Some speculate, you know, he was studying in Jerusalem during that time. Some speculate that he, he maybe heard it. Others compare this to Stephen's preaching. And now here's Paul preaching in a similar way to the man that he approved of being executed. So Paul understands what it is to be blind. Oh, if, if only they could see the plan of God that has always been a part of their history and now culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. If they could only see their history is by the sovereign plan and work of God. God is the one who chose the fathers of Israel. He is the one who blessed them in Egypt and made them great. He is the one who, in power, led them out of Egypt. He is the one who put up with them in the wilderness. God is the one who destroyed the pagan nations and gave them the land as an inheritance. Their history is God's doing. And it's all working to a great end in the coming of the Messiah. It's God who gave them judges and prophets. It's God that gave them the king that they wanted. It's God who removed that king and raised up King David, a man after his own heart. The one whose offspring would rule forever the Messiah, their Savior. And Paul proclaims to them that this offspring is Jesus. It's God's plan. He is the one who sovereignly worked in their history. And in mentioning the promise, 
Paul's hinting all the way back to the garden. He's hinting back to Genesis 3, to the very beginning, the promise that God gave in the garden where God said he would, he would take care of the problem of sin through the seed of the woman, an offspring to come who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the offspring of David, the Messiah, who has come in the person of Jesus. So in giving this history, Paul, he he proclaims two great truths. First is that Jesus is the culmination of all of biblical history. It's their history. Men of Israel, this is your life. All of it is purposeful. It's not random. It's all according to the definite plan of God. Paul is saying, all of this, all of these great events in your history, it was all leading up to this day right now. Then in verse 24, he goes back to describe it was only 20 years prior, another prophet who proclaimed Jesus. We read on, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Everything led to Jesus. All that's read every Sabbath has to do with Jesus. And you didn't recognize him. You didn't understand your own prophets, Paul is saying. And even though he was completely innocent, we had him executed. Paul's message was about Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the Messiah, the only Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the promised seed. And in proclaiming this, Paul is telling them how how they should rightly view and interpret the Scriptures. Here, they are all about the Scriptures. They're reading them every Sabbath, and Paul is really giving them a hermeneutic. Here's how you really should understand the Scriptures that you read. And, And not only them, but it's an important point for us. It's what I love about our our kids' curriculum. You know, our children's curriculum is not just telling a bunch of Old Testament stories and concluding. So share. Be nice. Be courageous. 
No, so many people look at the stories of the Old Testament as these moral tales with these conclusions of being brave and courageous. And yet, what we should see is that God is the hero in every story, and he's working to bring about his promised Messiah. This is what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He showed them how to rightly view and interpret the scriptures. That they had to, the scriptures had to do with him. Yes, it's, it's real history, but isn't God amazing when you think about it? Isn't God amazing to, to write history, to play out all of biblical history in a way that points to and eventually leads to the coming of his only begotten son, Jesus. And in doing so, we see God's intention, we see his grace, we see his love, his plan to rescue us and redeem us. Paul gave them a way of understanding their own scriptures. In essence, he's saying that if if they didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, then they have completely failed to understand what they study and read in synagogue every Sabbath. You don't get it if you don't see Jesus. A second proclamation that Paul makes is that Jesus' identity is it's confirmed by his resurrection. Paul continues in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul, he, don't you think he's anticipating their their thoughts, that he knows what they're thinking. How can we really be sure that this Jesus is who he said he is? After all, he's, I mean, he was condemned. And doesn't the fact that he died such a scandalous death by crucifixion prove that he was an imposter? The scriptures tell us that anyone who, who dies this kind of death being hung from a tree is is cursed of God, how could he be the one? And Paul's answer is, God raised him from the dead. That's how we know he's the one. The resurrection is the evidence that we need to see. It's God's vindication. It says that every word Jesus said, every work that he did is vindicated by the resurrection. It proves that he is the Messiah. In essence, if Jesus, if, if Jesus was a liar, why would God raise him from the dead? And not, and not only claim that, he not only claims this, but he says, we're witnesses to this. These are not empty claims. We saw him. Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. We're here to tell you that all of your history, all of the scriptures point to Jesus, who we saw raised, vindicated. And it's in your own scriptures. Paul then argues and gives them their own scriptures. He says, look at, look at the second psalm, at the second psalm that says, you are my son. 
today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul is making this argument to them from the Psalms. He's saying, it's not David. Obviously, David's body saw corruption. He's not the one being spoken of here. It's Jesus. Jesus is God's holy one. Here's the truth. Here's the proclamation. And this has to do with you. There's application. I'm not just giving you a history lesson. There's application to this. There's meaning to this. And here we come across this word, therefore. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, or through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He said, I'm not just giving you this, this history lesson. I'm proclaiming the purpose of it all. The application that your, your sins can be forgiven. That you can be freed. And the meaning of freed here is a legal term. Some translations use the word justified. The meaning is to be free of charges. To be found in the right. It's a legal term. Some some say justified. Some translations say justified. And with this, we get this idea of a judge making a legal declaration. You are forgiven. You are forgiven because all charges are, are found to be false. You are in the right. Because of Jesus, we're not guilty. And the law could never do this. The law, what did the law do? The law only showed us our sin. It only showed us our guilt. But the death of Jesus paid for that crime. And the perfect obedience of Jesus is counted as ours. So everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from condemnation. Let it be known. Let it be known through Christ and Christ alone there is forgiveness. It's wonderful news. There is justification in him. What the law was powerless to do, God has done by sending his own son. Apply that Believe and receive this good news. Then Paul gives a warning. His message is a proclamation. It has great application. And and there needs to be a response to this. Let's read from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your day, a work that you would not believe. 
even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people, they begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, sounds familiar, doesn't it? When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There are always two responses to the gospel, just as There are only two roads that we travel in this life on into eternity. There's the response of faith and there's the response of unbelief. We see some actually, some people actually begging Paul and Barnabas to come back next week and tell us more. While others didn't believe and reacted with jealousy and caused trouble. This is another turning point, as Paul and Barnabas say, you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. The Lord has commanded us to take the good news to the Gentiles instead of you. There are two responses, rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and stirring up persecution and driving Paul and Barnabas away. There's faith and there's unbelief. We can look at this. And we might wrongly be tempted to think, what's wrong with them? Right? I mean, it's just laid out before them. How can they not see? It's their own scriptures. And we could be tempted to think, unbelief, what's wrong with them? Paul gave such a great message, telling their own history, how it all points to Jesus. Jesus who was raised... Why can't they be more like the Gentiles who see the good news and rejoice? Why can't they see their own history, their own scriptures, the fulfillment in Jesus? What fools we might be tempted to say or think. And we should never say this. Why? Because for by by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're tempted to think this way. And maybe that reveals we don't really understand how it is that we were saved. What grace actually is. What works really are. It's not as if people are, are, it's not as if we're all morally neutral. And then the tipping point of salvation is our own intellect or wisdom in making genuinely the best decision that you can ever possibly make that anyone could ever possibly make, if that's not smarts or wisdom, I don't know what is. And if that's really what happened, if you're just neutral and you, you in your wisdom, chose Jesus, how could you not boast? How is that?